0: It is good to be back. 29 years ago, I came to my first service at Duke Chapel. And I don't remember anything except that I had come from North Dakota. And it was the fall. And in the fall in North Dakota, you wear long pants, whether no matter who you are. And I arrived in um, dress pants. And I think I was the only female in the room who wasn't wearing a skirt. Just 29 years ago, it's um, it's a good thing I think that we have become just a little bit less formal here. Thank you, Dr. Powery, for the invitation, and um, thank you all for your partnership in the gospel. God desires to be known. Being known is part of being in a relationship, and God wants that with us, with all of us. We heard a little of this in the Jeremiah text, right? No longer will they teach one another. They'll know me. I'll write my law on their hearts. They will all know me. Isaiah 65 has God saying something very similar I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. The Lord sounds like a child here who has grown bored or frightened by a game of hide and seek. Here I am, here I am, That announcement signals that the game is over. (laughs) Someone wants to be found. And the declaration quickly turns to lament when, here I am, receives only silence in response. At the beginning of his gospel, the evangelist John says about the unseen God that Jesus, the Son, has made him known. That is the work of Christ—to reveal the Father and send the Spirit. And this work is what Jesus is arguing about with the people in this morning's Gospel reading. The reading drops us down into the middle of a family fight. Everyone in the argument is a Jew, including Jesus, and the topic is his identity. Do you remember the years-long battle in American politics about whether President Obama was actually an American citizen? The crowd kept asking for his birth certificate. Who are you? Where is your authority from? Are you really one of us? This fight in the Gospel of John is like that one. The opponents of Jesus spar with him about who belongs, who is a son of Abraham and who is not. Jesus argues with his opponents, and then he speaks to those who are, uh, who are on his side of the argument. To those who have believed in him, Jesus says, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus identifies himself as that truth. A little later, he says, If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So here it is, the Son before them is the truth about the Father. The work of Jesus is to reveal the one who sent him, and these people are arguing about where he came from and who did send him. But Jesus is revealing that one in his words and his actions. Why? Because that one wants to be known. It is a long-term thing with God. We might even say God wants eternally to know us and to be known by us. At some time in our lives, all of us have known this about God, and we have returned the desire. In college, I wrote a lot of poetry. I'm kind of glad none of it survived. I don't remember any of what I wrote but I do remember how close to God I felt while I was doing it. I would find a quiet place outside where I would play with words and sit in the presence of God. The medium of desire need not be a teenager's poetry. Years ago, I was teaching a lay school class on the historical Jesus. The historical Jesus is an academic topic wherein people try to tease apart what the actual historical guy Jesus did with all the stuff that later writers attribute to him. I myself am skeptical given our sources for the life of Jesus and our human tendency to see what we want to see and ignore what we don't. I'm skeptical that anyone could be terribly successful at finding a Jesus distinct from the Gospels who is more interesting and truthful to know than the one we find in the Gospels. But I know a lot about the intellectual project, and I was teaching a group of lay adults on the subject. Maybe the fourth week into a six-week class, we were leaving class, and I asked one of the students, so what's your interest in this topic? And he said, I want to know Jesus. Simple as that. This area, academic area, that I had long since grown cynical about was not an academic undertaking for him at all. He wanted to know the Lord. Among the crowd in John 8, there are opponents of Jesus and there are also people who want to know him. And to those he says, keep at it. If you continue in my word, you will be my disciples. Stay in my word, remain here in the truth that you hear and trust and recognize in me, in that truth is your freedom. Jesus offers an invitation to ongoing friendship. It's an invitation to know and be known. And it makes even his friends anxious. When he talks about his disciples being made free, he touches a nerve. The story these disciples are telling about themselves is that they are already free. In fact, they've never been slaves to anyone. They tell this story to Jesus, too. They are proud of being Abraham's children and also ashamed enough to revise their own history. In order to feel free, the people need to hide. They need to lie about who they are and what their history is. In a moment, they have moved rather far from the mutual desire of God and human beings to know one another well. It's an understatement to say that from here on, the people push Jesus away. I don't think these folks are any worse than we are. They were only trying to salvage some pride in their past and some dignity in the present. We do something like this when we tell ourselves stories about how friendly our neighborhood is, or how fair our justice system is, or about the premier status of our institutions. We are exceptional, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. But this story we tell ourselves about ourselves gets really hard to maintain And as we work harder at that, we misplace that desire to know God. We do not know the truth, or at least we do not tell it. And instead of being freed by that, whatever truth might exist beyond the curated story feels more and more frightening. Maybe you are a student or a teacher and the last third of the semester happens or some other expression of real life, and you have more books, more ideas, more commitments than you can handle. And then bound up with all the books and papers are all kinds of losses and trials and fears, because life has not stopped while you are managing the story you're putting out there about it. After a while, the last thing you feel is free. There is a temptation at such a time to work harder. The papers or the grades are due. The world or the family or your health is falling apart, and you get organized. Or at least you tell yourself you need to get organized. You may even think, we need some rules around here. If you're a teacher, you think, we need some grades around here. If you are a supervisor, you think, my people need to show more commitment and you start haranguing either yourself or others to dig a little deeper. It is as if we all think we will know hard work and hard work will set us free. We lose what we once most deeply desired, to know God, to know the truth and to be both truthful ourselves and free. All we have left is the work of salvaging what we can. The word of Jesus and the central insight of the Protestant Reformation is this. It is not ours to salvage. We aren't saviors. Jesus is the one who saves. And the truth about us and others, even unvarnished, uncurated on social media, with only the best pictures and the most fun parties. Even the truth about us, unvarnished, does not scare him. If the cross did not scare him away from being the truth and telling the truth, then the truth about you and me will not scare him away either. So students, you do not have to salvage this semester. Your schoolwork, no matter what your field, has one goal, and it is not to save your reputation or advance your career. Whether you are studying microbiology or law, critical race theory or mathematics, Jesus means for your study to bring you more deeply into communion with the triune God. All sorts of things flow from that knowing, from that communion, most notably a desire to be also in communion with your neighbor. But the source and goal of all that you are learning is the desire of the Creator to be known, loved, and trusted eternally. Your professors are not God. Neither are your parents or the people reading your application for graduate school. The one who is God does not need you to curate the truth about yourself. God is much more concerned with being known than receiving a pitch from you. Faculty, your curiosity and the joy of discovery are gifts given to you by the God who wants to be known. You have been comforted, dismayed, delighted, and challenged over and over again by your work. Do you remember that, and what joy it had for you? In, with, and under all that, God is saying, here I am. There is your freedom. You do not have to save higher education. You do not have to fix your students or redeem your corner of the academy from the haters. Your work is to commune with the one whose saving work is already done and to invite others into that communion. And to the rest of us, I know the attraction of thinking the place will fall apart without you. And I also know that that thought is not an example of high self-esteem, but a temptation to sin. It is not yours to save the world, or your workplace, or your family, or yourself. There is plenty of work for you to do, but it is different work from salvation, and it flows from freedom and truth, not from fear and obligation. Sometimes the grace of God is described with words like these. God loves you infinitely in Christ. You do not do anything to earn that love. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more And there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. If that last sentence makes you nervous, you are not alone. We immediately want to put conditions on God's love, lest the world get even worse than it is now. For a moment, though, sit with the words. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. One of my teachers explained the Lutheran emphasis on grace and its relationship to the Christian life by asking us, now that you don't have to do anything, what do you want to do? The teacher fundamentally believed that as the light bulb went on concerning God's infinite love for us, no matter what, our own desires would be transformed. We would come to want— what God wants. Is it true, now that you don't have to do anything, what do you wanna do? Might you want to remain with Jesus, to continue in his word? You could stay a while in the places where he is making himself known to you. There he is, there he is, in your schoolwork, in your patient in your neighbor. There he is, in your own mess of a life and in the world that will be blessed by your love. There he is, the way, the truth, and the life that makes us free indeed. Amen.